Morning, Woodland Hills. Okay, about every four years, uh, God has a problem. Um, now, every four years, half of the entire world's population tunes into one event. Half of the world's population. Now, half of the world puts their attention and passion towards like something that really matters. It's super important every four years. It's so important that people actually pray about it. Now, uh, lots of people in this country will tell you that this event doesn't matter. And the reason why is because this country always loses. This country, whenever this country loses at something, what this country does is they say it's not important, right? That's what you and I do, right? Um, But the rest of the world disagrees with that. The rest of the world thinks that this event is super important. So what happens at this event um, is like... After, after there's one winner that's crowned, for the next two years, the rest of the world goes through the stages of grief. You know, like first denial, uh, then anger, eventually we get to acceptance. And then, but the thing that we know is like in four more years, it's coming around again. Um, and then, so like leading right up to the event, prayers from all over the world start going up to God and God gets really stressed out. God has a problem. The problem is people from all over the world are praying, asking God to give their team victory, but the problem is there can only, it's like the Hunger Games, there can only be one, okay? This event is called the World Cup, um, and it stresses God out. Now, uh, today we're kicking off a new series. Uh, We did this last summer, and it was really popular. It's called Twisted Scripture, and what we're doing is we're taking Scripture verses that had been... um, that have, that have been uh, taken out of their original context, and lots of people have misunderstood the meanings of those. And what we're trying to do is to help fit those scriptures back into the overall context of the Bible and hopefully correct some ways of looking at scriptures that have been not helpful and sometimes even downright hurtful. Um, now, back to the World Cup. Now, no one besides the players and the coaches, maybe a few people that gamble, no one really has anything on the line with the World Cup besides heart and passion. At the end of the day, if someone in Brazil prays for God to give them the World Cup and they lose, not much really changes. It doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of life. However, if your prayers are asking for your child's brain tumor to go away, or when you've been out of work for months and rent's coming due and you're looking for a job and no matter how many interviews you go to, you just can't find one, Or if your marriage is falling apart, and no matter how many marriage counselors' doors you knock on, none of them open up to hope or healing in that relationship. Then we look at a scripture verse that we're going to look at today, and we just think, like, Jesus must not have known what he's talking about. Or maybe Jesus was talking about something else entirely. If you have a Bible, uh, a printed one, you can get it out now. We're going to be in the book of Matthew And we're going to be at chapter 7. If you have a device that you pull it up on, that's great. You can pull it up there. We're going to spend a little bit of time there. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, um, we're so hospitable here that we're going to put the Bible verses up on the screen. Okay? Uh, So here's what Jesus says. Uh, This is part of his Sermon on the Mount. And he gives a teaching to the disciples that's oftentimes uh, been interpreted in all kinds of different ways. Here's what Jesus says. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. 
And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. And now he goes on to help explain the meaning of this. He gives us a little illustration. Which one of you, if your son asks you for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So, in everything... Do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. So you have a choice. You can either read the whole Old Testament or you can just read this verse 12, right? (laughs) It sums it all up for you. That's the cliff notes. Do unto others what you would have other people do unto you. Okay, these words are provocative. And here's the reason why. Uh, Asking and seeking and knocking. Receiving and finding and having doors open to you, this is the language and the world of desire. This arouses in us and in Jesus' listeners and in the human race overall, it arouses this idea, what do you want? What is it that you want? Now, a famous singer named Janice told God what she wanted when she said, Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes-Benz? <laughs> right? My friends all drive Porsches. Um, is that what God was getting at here? Is Jesus trying to tell us that everyone who asks for a Mercedes-Benz gets it? Now, in order to help us with this, um, I, was listening to a, uh, I was listening to a sermon, uh, a pretty famous and really great preacher talk about these verses, and he put up a slide with a couple of fill-in-the-blank sentences, and he asked us to personally fill in the blanks, and when I did, I realized that I'm an evil, terrible person, and I'm going to find out if you all are too, so we're going we're to do this together. Okay, I want you to fill in the blank with the word that comes into mind that would be most appropriate in this first sentence, okay? We're going to meet a guy named Larry. Now, Larry blank lives with his parents. What word, do you, what, what word fills that blank? Still, you guys are as evil as I am. Larry still lives with his parents. The fact that Larry's still with his parents makes Larry, Larry is a... First service was much more evil than you guys were. <laughs> Somebody said it out loud. My, here's how evil I am. Larry is a loser in my mind. Okay. Now, only thing is, Larry is nine years old. Okay? So if you were judging him, then you got a problem, just like I did. Okay. Two things I want to say about this. The first thing is context is really, really, really important. The fact that we didn't know that Larry was nine years old made it very easy for us to jump to some wrong assumptions about that, which folks have done around these verses plenty. Uh, The second thing, though, is um, we have to remember that understanding Scripture, um, oftentimes the way that we interpret Scripture tells us more about ourselves than it tells us about the Scripture. Lots of us feel like, uh, if Larry is 39 years old and collects model trains and he's still living at home, we feel like he's a loser. And one of the reasons we do is because we live in a country where the way of life and the mentality has not been defined by a declaration of vulnerability, right? That wasn't what got signed in 1776. It was the declaration of what? An independent people we are. 
Because independence is something that we value. The minute that a person in our society isn't on a pathway of becoming less and less dependent on other people, the more they get out of line with the way that we think that things should be. So when Jesus is going to teach us a story about asking and seeking and knocking, about receiving and finding and doors being opened, it makes a lot of sense that one of the primary things that we would think of is Jesus must have been talking about stuff. Stuff that can make you happy, stuff that can make you comfortable, stuff that can make you safe. See, asking and seeking and knocking tell a story. Like as soon as I say the word ask, a couple things have to be part of this verb. One of them, you have to have someone that needs something. How many people in American society like to be needy? Like when someone says, oh, you're being really needy right now. Is that a compliment? No. However, Jesus gets right to the heart of the human condition and says, like, you need something. You're needy. I'm needy. So in order for there to be a question, someone needs something. And the other thing that has to happen is someone else has to have something. But then the third thing that needs to be there uh, is someone has to want something. There has to be a desire. So there's desire, and there's need, there's dependence, and there's vulnerability. So it makes a lot of sense that we would take these verses, and instead of placing ourselves in a position of vulnerability, which is what I think these verses do, it makes sense that what we would do is we would make God a divine vending machine, where however many coins you put in, you make your selection, and then you get what you want. And the thing is, you just have different variations of what the coins are, Some people see God as a vending machine, and the coins are faith. If you have enough faith coins and you put them in there, eventually when you hit F3, the Reese's peanut butter cup will come down, right? For some people, people, the coins are works. If you do enough good stuff, then you can convince God, who actually doesn't like you, to do something nice for you. Do you know there's a ton of people that this is their picture of God? And the biggest problem with the vending machine mentality that comes out of these verses, and I think the saddest thing that happens out of it, is that there's a lot of people who want a kingdom without a king. And if you think about this for a second, if everyone got what everyone wanted and asked for, wouldn't that be a disaster? If I got everything that I wanted and asked for, that would be a disaster. If every door that I, op- that I knocked on was opened, if everything that I was seeking I was able to find, it would be a mess. Because Jesus had his finger on what the main problem of the human race was. The main problem of human beings isn't that we're not getting enough. The main problem is that we're disconnected from the Father. And because we're disconnected from the Father, we actually want the wrong things. Jesus was not going to give these folks everything that they wanted, but he was trying to help them want the right things. Now, I have children. Uh, I have three of them. My oldest son is 20. He's an excellent drummer. That's actually his job, and he lives here in St. Paul. Um, fortunately, in another home, mostly because I don't want to hear all the noise. 
Now, my youngest son still lives at home. He just hit the teen years. He has all of his mother's sweetness and all of my opinions in the same body. Poor guy. Um, And in the middle, we have a girl, a teenage girl. Uh, Why is it that you think that I have no hair, right? (laughs) Now, this teenage girl has a room, and this teenage girl has things, especially clothes. Now, I mentioned that I grew up in a military family. I've, I've said that a few times here before. Uh, and it very much sort of shaped my childhood in the way that I see lots of things. In fact, I have self-given, I've given myself the degree of, uh, I have a PhD in home organization and order. So you can imagine from a military family with that much passion for order, what does my closet look like? I have a little saying, everything has a place and everything is and the world is good, right? <laughs> now, back to my daughter. Now, um, have you ever seen the pictures taken from a helicopter after like a tornado or a hurricane, a natural disaster? Um, so my wife and I decided it was time to declare a state of emergency in her room. And we needed a pathway of discipleship for my daughter. We needed to help get her clothes from like a three-layer cake um, up into the closet. Now, one reason of this is because her little kingdom, her room, exists as a subspace in my wife and I's larger kingdom called the house. And I don't know if you know this, but the parents' kingdom trumps the kiddos' kingdom. Now, this isn't a sermon on parenting, so I don't want any kind of emails about that. I'm just telling you what happens in my house. So we sat her down and we said, our kingdoms are clashing and they need to come together. And our kingdom is advancing into yours. So we said to her, you're going to go through all of your clothes, the dirty ones on the floor and the clean ones that are also on the floor. And you're going to take out one week's worth of clothing. And you're going to hang those clothes up in your closet. And the rest of them are going to go away. And there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. (laughs) Right? Now, seriously, they just went to some storage bins in the basement. And every week, she can pick a new one out. I don't need to tell you more about that. But seriously, for my family, uh, the simplicity of the kingdom of God is one of the things that we deeply believe in. We believe that it's part of our role as parents to help us disciple our kids towards the thing that we believe in and care about. We can't make them choose it, but it's our job to help move them towards that. We all know how that goes. Now, let's get back to Luke chapter 7, because we're going to keep talking about the context. If Jesus isn't saying that God is a divine vending machine where you can put prayers in and get what you want out, um, why else would that not make sense? Okay? Now, What Jesus was primarily doing in his ministry and in this sermon itself is he was trying to teach the disciples something they desperately needed to know, something you still desperately need to know, something that I every day need to know. And that is, what is the Father like? Can the Father be trusted? This is the reason why when Jesus decides to give an illustration, he gives an illustration about you as a parent, you're an evil parent, but even you know how to do good for your kiddos. And he said, do you think that God, if you asked him for bread, right, something that would be good, or if you asked for a fish, this should be a little sign for us that Jesus is not part of our culture. Do your kids ever ask you for fish? No, it doesn't happen in my house, right? said, if you ask for a fish, would you give your kid a snake? The thing is, like, 
fish and snake look like each other. In ancient cultures, bread and stones looked like each other. Jesus is saying, do you think that the Father is tricking you? And see, that might not be that important to us, but for the disciples, think about this. That is a totally important question. Because Jesus went around the country, his country, and said, God is doing something new, and he needs you. Would you come along? And they said, sure. What's, enti- what's entailed in this? What am I going to have to do? And they said, you're going to have to give up everything. And they said, okay. So doesn't it make a bunch of sense that Jesus, in a sermon to these folks who have given up everything and have put a lot on the line and wonder if their hopes and if those things are going to come true for Jesus to say, listen, doesn't it seem ridiculous that what Jesus would be saying is any kind of material comfort or possessions or safety concerns you have, just tell God he'll give you all of them? Doesn't that sound ridiculous given the story? I mean, was Jesus like overflowing with material possessions? Was he primarily concerned about his own safety and comfort? No. Did Jesus get everything that he prayed for? The disciples, does it seem like Jesus was saying like, hey, ask God for anything that you need from a material and safety standpoint. I don't think that could possibly be true given the story. But what they did need to know is they totally needed to know, is the Father trustworthy? If I need the Father in the carrying out of the mission that you're giving us, will God be able to be depended on when we need him? Okay, to help me with this, we're going to look at a little bit of the context of the sermon. So on the slide. So this comes out of a part where Jesus, in this giant, beautiful, amazing sermon, uh, he tells some stories about lilies and birds. He said, listen, the birds of the air, air, they don't worry about stuff. The flowers, they're beautiful. They don't worry about what they're going to wear. Jesus is trying to get them to move away from anxiety. Okay, something that we don't struggle with in our society, right? This is clearly their problem. Move away from anxiety and move towards a place of trust. Jesus was trying to tell them, you can entrust yourself to God's care. And then he goes on in verse 7, and he starts talking about control. And he starts talking about, for us as human beings, how is it that we try to control people? And really, there's two ways. One of the ways is kind of aggression. It's judging people. This is totally the way you get people to change their behavior. You judge them for doing this, and then you encourage them for doing this. Which one are people more likely going to do? No one likes to be judged. And Jesus says, stop trying to control people by judging what they do. So he says, not only should you be non-anxious about your own connection with God, you should also be non-anxious and controlling about your relationships with other people. He said, don't control by judging. And then he turns it and he starts talking about this weird part about don't throw pearls to pigs. Don't let them trample on that. And I think what he's getting at is I think there's two ways we control people. First of all, we judge them. And when the negative doesn't work to control people, then we go to the positive um, and we manipulate them. By giving them more than they can handle. By giving them something good and saying, here's something good, come along. And I think the key is like, he says, if you do that, watch out because eventually they'll turn on you. Don't people please and try to control people and don't manipulate them by judging. And the whole take of the sermon then is to say like, you, you don't have to control So the sermon says that we should stop doing those things. Um, And the sermon says that we should stop worrying, that we should stop judging, we should stop pleasing people, but it also says that we should never stop doing something. 
Now, um, in, the, uh, in the original language of the scripture, which it wasn't written in English, and we kind of know that around here, uh, in the past series, especially the creation one, we got more Hebrew words than I learned in college, um, which is great, right? Um, so when Jesus uses uh, these words, ask, seek, and knock, he doesn't use like a command that would say like one time you should ask, one time you should seek, one time you should knock. He uses what's called the present imperative tense. And that carries with this idea that we need to keep on doing it, that we should keep asking, that we should continue seeking, and that we should never stop knocking. See, the central message of Jesus in his central sermon, the most amazing gift, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is fully available to you right now. And he said this to the disciples, and he's saying this to you. Every moment of every day, the kingdom of God and the king who reigns over it is fully available to you. And it's available right now through a pathway that's called discipleship. Because the thing is, is you have to learn it. We don't like that. I don't like that. I want things right now. I know you're nothing like me. But the truth of the matter is the primary work that Jesus has had to do in me is trying to teach me to want different things. Now the last part here is the context of Jesus' own life. I mean, when Jesus is standing in front of these disciples, I have a question for you. What is it that the Father most wanted to give to the disciples? You think about that for a second. I mean, think about the Father has everything at his disposal, and yet there's one thing that he wants to give these disciples more than anything else. What does he want to give them? Let's look at Luke chapter 12, 32, and we get a real clear answer. Jesus says to them, Don't be afraid, little flock. It gives your Father great happiness to give you the kingdom. The Father wanted most to give them the kingdom. What did Jesus want to give most to them? He talked about it incessantly over and over again. He talked about the kingdom of God, and one of the words that he used to try to help sort of break that down so they could understand it is he just used one of the most beautiful words in language. He wanted to give them life. See, Jesus was brilliant in that he knew that sometimes people were alive and totally dead at the same time. And in a surprising twist, Jesus could show up at graves where people were dead. And he could say, like, you think these people are dead, but they're alive. Jesus understood life in a way that we don't. And who is it that would lead them into this life that Jesus talked about? It was the Spirit. And in another place in Luke, where we have these same verses recorded about asking and seeking and knocking, he sums it up by saying, the Holy Spirit's going to come to you. It's going to be the most incredible gift that you've ever gotten. Did you know that there is never a moment in your life where the kingdom of God is not available? Now, how do I know um, what I should and shouldn't pray about? Like, now, how, if, I, if, if these verses are challenging, like, I'm supposed to, like, want different things, well, what happens if I don't? What happens if I want a Mercedes Benz? Can I still pray about that? Sure you can. No one's going to stop you. How many moms? Raise your hand if you're a mom. 
Okay, so all of you moms have kids. Um, how many of you moms with kids, your kids would usually ask you for things? Did that ever happen? Did your kids ever ask you for something? Not very often. How many of your kids are like 40 and they're still asking you for stuff? Can you babysit the grandkids? And you're like, please, stop asking me, right? Okay, moms, I want you to think about this for a second. This is a would-you-rather situation, right? Would you rather have your kids ask you for stupid stuff mixed in with good stuff, or would you rather have them not ask you for anything at all? See, the reality is asking and seeking and knocking. The reason why Jesus says don't ever stop doing that partly is because it's good for you. But another part is because this is the thing that God wants to most with us is called a relationship. A relationship of vulnerability, but a relationship. God doesn't get as bothered by people asking for inappropriate things as he gets bothered by people not asking for anything at all. Hey, look at that, Josh. They're doing it. And one of the reasons we get this is because we look at Jesus' own life and at his toughest point in a part of Scripture that there's lots of interpretations of, but I think we still don't, um, it doesn't sort of take away the main point. Jesus, at one of his most difficult moments, talks very openly and honestly with the Father in the same way that we can. In Luke chapter 22, he just says, Father, if you're willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Jesus himself looked at the Father and said, I'd rather not. So if there's another way, can we try that one? But like in this heroic moment that all of us hopefully can be inspired by, he comes back to his main priority, the main priority of his life. He said, I want your will to be done and not mine. I don't want what I want. I want what you want. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I just want to say, you don't have to have all your prayer requests perfectly. I'm saying, I don't think that the idea of these scripture verses is that God is a vending machine, and if you put enough quarters, you can get what you want out of it. I do think that what Jesus is saying is that in this relationship with the Father, what we're supposed to do is to keep asking and to keep seeking and to keep knocking. Now, I want to close uh, with a little short story from one of my favorite authors. Um, he says, one evening, my wife Nancy pulled me into our bedroom and she said, she said that she wanted to talk to me. She closed the door so that none of the kids could hear and she took out a list. I was not happy to see a list. She claims it was an index card, but it had words written on it, so to me, that's a list. <laughs> you know, she said, when our marriage is at its best, I feel like we share responsibilities. I feel like we divide our work well, our kids see us do that, and I feel valued. And I think that's important for our family. But for some time now, because you feel so many demands on your life, this value has been slipping, she said. When our marriage is working well, she continued, I also feel like we both know each other's lives. You know details about my life, and I know details about yours, and I feel like that's been slipping too. Lately, I know what's going on with you, she said, but you don't ask me much about what's going on with me. When our marriage is at its best, you bring a kind of lightness and joy to it, she said. And then she reminded me of a story. It was a story about our second date. And we were in the lobby of the Disneyland Hotel. Uh, we were waiting to get something to eat. 
And she had to use the bathroom. And when she came out, there were scores of people all around us in the lobby. And I was in a goofy mood, so I said loudly enough for everybody to hear, Woman, I can't believe you kept me waiting here for two hours. I was trying to embarrass her. And her immediate response was, Well, I wouldn't have to wait for you, or I wouldn't have to if you didn't insist on having your mother live with us, and so I have to wait on her hand and foot every day. She yelled that right across the lobby on our second date. And my first thought was, I really like this woman. (laughs) Nancy reminded me of that story, and she said, when our marriage is at its best, you can listen and laugh and be spontaneous, and you haven't been doing that for a while. I love that guy, and I miss that guy, she said. And I knew what she was talking about. I miss that guy too, I told her. I'd love to feel free like that, but I feel like I'm carrying so many burdens. I have personnel issues and financial challenges at work. I have writing projects and traveling commitments. I feel like I'm carrying this weight all the time. I get what you're saying, honey, but I need you to know I'm doing the best I can. And she looked at me immediately and responded, no, you're not. That was not the response I had anticipated, he said. (laughs) Because everybody knows you're supposed to nod your head sympathetically when someone says they're doing the best that they can. But Nancy loves the truth, and I do too. But she loves it too much to do that, so she rang my bell. No, you're not, she said. You've talked about how it would be a good idea to see a counselor or get your schedule figured out or an executive coach or maybe a spiritual director. You've talked about building friendships, but I haven't seen you take any steps towards any of that. No, you're not. As soon as she said that, I knew she was right. But I didn't say that to her. (laughs) Because my spiritual gift is pouting. And I exercised it beautifully over the next three days. (laughs) But while I did, a question emerged in my mind. And that question was this. John, what is it that you really want? I began to realize that what I really want isn't any particular outcome on any particular project. Those are all just means to an end. What I really want is to be fully alive. What I really want is the inner freedom to live in love and joy. I want to be the man that she described. I'm a grown man, I thought. I do not know how many years of life are before me. I can't wait anymore. When I was going to school and I was young, I was preoccupied with good grades or getting cute girls to like me. As the years went by, I became preoccupied with work and my circumstances because I thought that they would make me feel alive. But I can't wait anymore to be the man that God dreamed of. I realized this then, and I know it now, that I want life more than I want anything else. Not because I think I'm supposed to, not because it says somewhere that you should. It's because I want it. There is a picture of me in the kingdom that I want to be. I want you to think about this. When we think about these verses that Jesus says, that everyone who asks gets, and everyone who seeks finds, and everyone who knocks on the door gets it open, what is the one thing that God can give every person who asks for it? And it's given. What's the one thing that every single person who seeks it can find it? And what's the one thing that whenever someone knocks on the door, it is open? What's the one thing? It's you. It's the you that God dreamed of. It's your life. It's you fully alive. Everyone who asks for God's life in them gets it. Everyone who seeks a new start gets it. 
Has anyone ever knocked on the door of the father's home and the door not been opened? Not once, never. Do you know, that's why it's been called salvation. So don't stop asking for it. And don't stop knocking on every door that can lead to it. And don't stop seeking it. Because this is the way that we were designed to live. At home with the Father, seeking the kingdom, seeking a way of life that's fully alive. Let me say a short prayer for you. Thanks. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Uh, After I get done with the prayer, then we're going to take an offering and enter into a second time of worship. But before I do that, let me say a prayer over you. God, you are the author of life and you know what it looks like when human beings step fully into that. God, I'm reminded that my main problem isn't that I don't have enough things. My main problem is that when I'm in charge of my own life, it's a mess. Lord, I pray for those of us that are here that have been Christians for a long time, but for some reason we've stopped seeking and we've stopped asking and we've stopped knocking on doors. I pray that you'd shake us. I pray that this kingdom revolution that Jesus invites us into, that it would be stirring to us. I pray for people that are here that have been afraid to knock, that have been afraid um, of the life that you might have for them. I pray that you'd help them overcome that fear. I pray for people who feel on the outside of your love in the way that only you can and in the way that you've done for me over and over in my life. I pray that you would touch them in a way that they know that your love is totally available to them right now. And I pray that the life that you have for us, the life that we've always wanted, I'm thankful that you're faithful and say like when we ask for it and when we seek it and when we knock at it, that it will be found. And I pray that anyone here or anyone listening on podcast or video um, that is wondering the same question the disciples were wondering, can God be trusted? pray that you would show yourself trustworthy. In your name I pray.